You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Ann Goldberg, president of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Caskell, presented by the National Lipid Association. My guest today is Dr. Alan Brown, who is medical director of the Midwest Heart Disease Prevention Center at Midwest Heart Specialists in Naperville, Illinois. Alan Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We are here in Seattle at the National Lipid Association meetings, and it seems that Seattle is quite the lipid-savvy city. There are trucks driving all around town advertising fibrates, which is quite amazing, and kind of leads into our discussion tonight, which is some of the new targets that we're attacking in the treatment of atherosclerosis in 2008 and beyond, specifically HDL, it seems, has risen near the top of new targets. Alan, would you like to comment a little bit about that? Well, I think that LDL still remains the primary target of treatment because in all high-risk patient populations, lowering LDL significantly reduces risk. But over the last decade or so, we've developed very effective therapies to lower LDL. We can lower LDL 60% with one pill a day. And so the LDL story has played itself out pretty well. I think that the next decade is going to focus on trying to additionally reduce risk beyond what we can do with LDL lowering. And it seems like the most likely target based on epidemiologic evidence and what suggestive clinical data that we have is that HDL will be the next most likely target. So really what you're talking about is this residual risk that kind of sticks around after you've maxed out statin therapy and gotten LDLs down to as low as we can go, but uh, it still seems that 60 to 70 percent of these patients are still having events. So we have a, an enormous pool of patients to help. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. The whole concept of residual risk is sort of a pet peeve of mine because I think that many people will blame the residual risk on whatever their favorite entity is. Some will say it's because we don't attend to HDL. Others will say it's a triglycerides. Others will say that we didn't look at LP little a or we didn't look at particle numbers or particle size. But the residual risk really can be explained by many things. If, for example, we know that lowering LDL reduces risk, we see that same curve of lowering LDL reducing risk in people with smoking on top of dyslipidemia. It's just that that line is parallel but higher risk than individuals who don't smoke. So there's some additional residual risk. We know that people who have insulin resistance get an additional risk based on low HDL and high triglycerides that people with hypertension have additional risk. So as much as we're lipocentric, some of the residual risk is due to other things, high blood pressure, smoking, et cetera. And it turns out about 98% of that residual risk can be explained by traditional cardiovascular risk factors. But one of them certainly is low HDL, and so we need to attend to that. But I don't think that will get rid of all the residual risk. Alan, I like to ask a lot of lipidologists this question. What is the real risk for a 45-year-old guy of having a heart attack taking all comers? I mean, is his risk really outrageously high, or is it, let's say, 6% in the next 10 years, and then you add a statin on, and you've lowered it to you know, 5.3%? Right, and I think that's why we have national guidelines that determine intensity of therapy based on risk. And we don't recommend treating every 45-year-old male. But once you start adding additional risk factors, 
then their risk becomes substantial and the benefits of treatment become substantial. So the caveats are if you have a 45-year-old male without any other risk factors, they have to have an extremely high LDL to warrant therapy, over 160. And that's what the guidelines say. But once you start adding on risk factors, then their real 10-year risk goes up substantially. And though I don't have the numbers for you for a 45-year-old, I can tell you based on an abstract we presented at ACC this year, if you're a 55-year-old male with any two additional risk factors, whether that be low HDL, high blood pressure, cigarette smoking, but any two, you have a 99% chance of having 10% or greater 10-year risk which means a 1 in 10 chance of a major event. And you can cut that risk in half over five years with statin therapy. So most of us in lipidology agree that 10% or greater 10-year risk warrants therapy. So we could say that all 55-year-old males with two or more additional risk factors would warrant therapy. Right, so if we take that 10% number and you add a statin on, are you saying that you will go from 10% down to 5% or you will go from 10% down to somewhere in the nines if we're talking about absolute risk reductions versus relative risk reductions. We're talking about relative risk reductions when we talk about 40 to 50% reduction in risk. But you would have to treat between 10 and 15 patients to save a major cardiovascular event over the next 10 years. So if you want to measure it into what the absolute risk reduction is, the numbers become much more powerful when you cover blood pressure, cigarette smoking, exercise, plus lipids. But that's still better than almost anything we do in medicine. Beta blockers, you have to treat many more people to save a major cardiovascular event. And certainly some of the things that we do without thinking, like mandating baby car seats to save right. a fatal auto so accident. I want to understand that a little better. You're saying the number needed to treat is pretty low, around 15. The numbers needed to treat depend on the risk of the individual. So if you read the Business Week article, you get a little bamboozled because they suggested that you have to treat hundreds of people to save an event. That's true if you take younger individuals without risk factors. But if you look at people who have two or more risk factors who are over 45, based on the clinical trials that we have, you treat somewhere between 10 to 20 patients to save a major cardiovascular event. Then if you look at people who have established coronary disease but don't have diabetes, the number is amazingly consistent, about 10 people treated to save a major cardiovascular event. And if they have diabetes without cardiovascular disease, you have exactly the same numbers, about 10 people treated to save a major cardiovascular event. And unfortunately, with the epidemic of diabetes, if you have the combination of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, only about four people placed on a statin will save a major cardiovascular event over the next five to seven years. So that's better than almost anything we have in medicine and actually better numbers than you can show with interventions. Do you think in the year 2008, if a physician is treating a diabetic and does not put them on a statin, that that physician is either negligent or risks potential bad things to happen to him? Even if their numbers are, let's say, an LDL of 120? It turns out it doesn't matter what the LDL is in an adult diabetic. They get the same reduction in risk by being placed on a statin based on the heart protection study. So all adult diabetics, at least type 2 diabetics where we have a lot of information, should be on a statin. And certainly if they have coronary disease and diabetes and you don't treat them with a statin, you've missed the single biggest opportunity to reduce 
morbidity and mortality in those patients. You know, my mother and dad were both general practitioners, and I think most physicians went into medicine to try and do what's right for patients, so I, I don't like to get into the discussion of bad things happening to them if they don't do things. In my experience, the reason that physicians don't treat patients appropriately is not so much lack of knowledge or lack of good intent, but it's lack of an appropriate systematic approach to patient care. And let's talk a little bit about some of the studies that back up the new targets of HDL. Specifically, tell me a little bit about what we learned from the TNT trial. Well, I think what we learned from TNT is that even when the LDL gets very low, patients with the lower quartiles of HDL still have additional risk compared to those who had higher HDLs. So the TNT study showed that the basic premise of the TNT study was to show that in stable cardiovascular patients that getting the LDL somewhere closer to 70 to 80 rather than 90 to 100 would further reduce cardiovascular events. And indeed, it showed that. But when you look at subgroup analysis of the group of people in TNT who had LDL cholesterol less than 70, what's rather striking is that the HDL was less than 40. Those people continued to have events at a higher rate than the people with the higher HDLs, suggesting that they still have residual risk due to the HDL and that there may be an opportunity to further lower their future risk by attending to the HDL. Alan, I'm a big fan of hats and fats, not only the ones you wear and eat, but the clinical trials and what they've taught us. I've never really seen as dramatic an event reduction as we saw in the HATS trial, and I always hear critics saying, well, it was a very small study, but still, can you comment on the event reduction and if you think it's powerful and significant? Well, I also was stunned when I saw the event reduction. And as you recall, the HATS and FATS trials were combination therapy trials with statins plus niacin. In one case in HATS, they also had a limb with antioxidant vitamins. But the major therapeutic arms were statin alone versus statin plus niacin. And they had really an unbelievable reduction in cardiovascular events. I think most of us felt they were relatively small studies, so one event here or there might make a big effect on the difference. But Greg Brown, the author of those trials, is No relation. Not related. <laughs> we're friends, and I would be proud to be related, but I'm not. But uh, he has gone back and done a meta-analysis of prior clinical trials and tried to guesstimate if we had raised HDL and used combination therapy, the event reduction, which was, again, rather stunning, but just an estimate. So we don't yet have large-scale prospective outcome trials, but there are several underway. Right. I mean, there, we have AIM High, right. and in a few years, we're either going to be amazed or HATS was a, a blip. Yeah, and I, I think that we have the Arbiter 2 trial where mm -hmm. we looked at carotid minimal medial thickness and showed that they got substantially less progression, adding niacin to a statin than statin alone. So that gives us a, at least an atherosclerotic basis uh, on a cellular level to assume that maybe AIM High will be a positive study, but we've got to wait and see. Well, you brought up the Arbiter trials. Can you elaborate a little bit for people listening that may not be familiar with what those trials were all about? Yes, Arbiter 2 was a very interesting study that randomized patients to extended release niacin plus a statin or a placebo niacin plus statin. And they measured baseline intimal medial thickness in the patients and then followed them up at 12 months for a change in carotid IMT, comparing statin alone to statin plus niacin. 
And as you know, the statin alone group had a slight progression of intimal medial thickness, whereas the statin plus niacin group had halting of progression and even a slight amount of regression. So that was very interesting, suggesting that the addition of niacin to a statin may give you atherosclerotic benefit. The one piece of that that hasn't been advertised too much was that the people with metabolic syndrome who are pre-diabetes actually didn't get nearly as much benefit. They had a trend towards benefit over the statin alone, but it wasn't statistically significant. Once again, pointing out those parallel levels of risk that if you don't attend to all the risk factors and you just focus on one, you won't get optimal results. Alan Brown, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, please visit www.lipid.org. Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals.